Sephora stores are everywhere you are. So just pop in when you need a brown lip to match your 90s playlist, a confidence boost before your interview, or a last-minute gift for mom's birthday. There's always a Sephora near you. Just pop in. Use our store locator to find your local Sephora or Sephora at Kohl's. What moral code would you break to save the life of someone you loved? What would you do to avoid crushing loneliness? And at what point do those actions go from being justified and understandable to unacceptable, despicable, and acts against humanity? Coco Chanel has become a controversial figure in recent years as her ties to Nazi Germany during World War II have been unveiled. However, her story is not as black and white as it appears. And while Chanel has experienced a deserved fall from grace, it's what triggered that fall that to this day remains a disturbing mystery in fashion history. Hello everyone and welcome to The Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati and today we are redoing one of our older episodes on the brand Chanel. Don't be worried if you've never seen that episode. It was, I think maybe 10 or 12 minutes long. It was only a video on the YouTube channel and it was extremely surface level. That's not to downplay that video. I still think it was a pretty good video. It was of course, very surface level, very simple, very easy to digest. Now, as we've developed these episodes to be much more structured, much more in depth and have much more detail, I really wanna revisit some of those older topics and you know, brush them off and give them the love that I think they deserve. Now, in terms of love when it comes to Chanel, there is not much love here because today's episode will be primarily focused on Chanel's ties to Germany in World War II and her rise to becoming the fashion icon that she remains to this day. While you likely know Chanel as a designer, there's far more to her story. She was the symbol of France, almost literally in one case. Chanel was heavily featured in a paper known as Le Lemois, which means the witness. Brandeis University says that this paper was a scathing report on every aspect of French political life created by Paul Iriba. It was short-lived just from December, 1933 to June, 1935. As Iribe himself had a love affair with Chanel, she was the inspiration for a lot of his work and the main character, Marianne, or the symbol of the nation of France was drawn to look like her. While this doesn't mean Chanel herself was doing anything wrong by being featured in these cartoons, I found it interesting that she was used as a symbol of France. But why Coco Chanel? Well, as it turns out, Chanel did have quite a bit of influence in France. Whether or not Iribe knew about it as he drew his muse rubbing elbows with Nazis, standing trial before Hitler, resisting the advancement of communism or being crucified, Chanel would go on to have some questionable ties with Nazis herself. Perhaps you've even heard of these ties and chalked it up to yet another wealthy socialite doing whatever it takes to save their own skin. But is this the case with Chanel? Was she as greedy as the other French socialites that conspired with the Nazis? Or was she trying to save her nephew trapped and ill in a prisoner of war camp? Let's find out. Gabrielle Bonheur Chanel, more commonly known as Coco Chanel, was born in 1883 in France. Her mother died when she was only 11 years old and Chanel was sent to a Catholic Abazine convent orphanage with her sisters before eventually being moved to a Catholic boarding house. As you could probably imagine, Catholicism was a huge part of Chanel's life growing up. And at the time, there was also a lot of anti-Semitism within that community. 
This was largely due to the Dreyfus, known as the Dreyfus Affair, a monumental political crisis in French history. To generalize what happened here, Army Captain Alfred Dreyfus had been convicted of selling military secrets to Germans in 1894. Dreyfus was Jewish, and as much of the area was anti-Semitic at the time, he was seen as a convenient scapegoat. There wasn't actually any real evidence that he did this though, and an important document implicating Dreyfus was later found to be a forgery. Some firmly believed he was guilty all the same even after this fraudulent documentation was revealed, whereas others insisted that Dreyfus was innocent, dividing France and causing a massive outcry. It wasn't until 1899 where he was pardoned, and it wasn't until a century later in 1995 that he was publicly declared innocent. The entire Dreyfus affair is a long, complicated, and very messy with a whole host of twists and turns. It's important for us to consider this because it really contributed in shaping who Coco Chanel became. Author Hal Vaughn, who's written about Coco Chanel, and we will talk more about him later, has claimed that there is simply no way Chanel would have been able to escape the Catholic Church's propaganda campaign against Jewish officer Dreyfus. Back in this era, being Catholic and French were considered to be one and the same thing, as some sources explain. Therefore, the idea of a traitor being Jewish, well, it seemed like the tides were turned against Dreyfus from the start. Anti-Semitic presses would spew hatred of, quote, the sorry figure of the filthy rich Yids, rooting around to steal the gold of France. People said treason such as Dreyfus had committed and was selling the blood of French soldiers to Germany like a butcher sells meat. So many of the people against Dreyfus were Catholic and so many French people were Catholic. Therefore, it's pretty widely assumed that when Chanel would develop her own anti-Semitic values, it was within this time period. In later years, right around the turn of the century, Chanel got work as a seamstress. At various points, she was also a shop girl and a cafe singer, but it was the relationship Chanel made that truly turned her life around. According to PBS, Gabrielle changed her name to Coco at the cafe, presumably from a song she sang or from the shortened term for a kept woman in French. Coco was smart, beautiful, and witty. She spent much of the 20s, 30s, and even 40s moving from bow to bow, as PBS puts it. It was a wealthy man in these socialite circles that introduced her to high fashion. Britannica says that one of them, Arthur Boy Capel, was one of the first to give her financial assistance, allowing her to open a millinery shop in Deauville, France. A millinery shop just also means a hat shop. She sold sportswear there as well, like jersey sweaters that created a poor girl look that apparently attracted wealthy women looking for a break from corseted styles. Really long corsets were falling out of favor and bust bodices and padded camisoles were becoming more and more popular. So it's no surprise that Coco's designs took off. She coined the phrase, luxury must be comfortable, otherwise it is not luxury around this time, which many women related to. And just a couple years later in 1915, one line from the Harper's Bazaar read, the woman who hasn't at least one Chanel is hopelessly out of fashion. This season, the name of Chanel is on the lips of every buyer. All things considered, Coco's rise to the top was incredibly quick. Ernest Beau, one of the most renowned perfume creators in France, collaborated with her to create the famous Chanel No. 5 perfume. Apparently some women literally believed that Chanel No. 5 would preserve their skin. Just two years later, Coco's socialite friend, Vera Bate, introduced her to British royalty, the Duke of Westminster, Edward, Prince of Wales, and even Winston Churchill. Coco began a relationship with the Prince of Wales not long afterwards, putting her in the spotlight even further. Missy Assur, a pianist, patron of the arts and dear friend of Chanel's, described Coco as such. For the wealthy woman, she imposed an expensive simplicity and made millions doing it. 
Chanel's genius, her generosity, the facade of the self-made woman, her devastating sarcasm, and her ferocious capacity for destruction terrified and intrigued everyone. Her name soon became synonymous with luxury and fashion, basically royalty. By the late 1920s, the Chanel industries were worth millions. Coco's take on the little black dress, her introduction to the famous Chanel suit with a colorless jacket and well-fitted skirt, all happened during the 1920s. Her wardrobes were used for movies in the coming years, bringing her iconic looks to the big screen. Coco Chanel was rubbing elbows with some important people, but not all of them were a good influence. It wasn't just the Prince of Wales that Coco Chanel had a relationship with, but the Duke of Westminster as well. He is known to those close to him as Bender, and though the Duke was married, the two of them had an affair together. Bender, it seems, fanned the flames of anti-Semitism and homophobia within Chanel. Vaughn's book claimed that he tutored her on the evils of communism and confirmed her antipathy towards Jews. On one disgusting occasion, when the Duke's brother-in-law advocated free trade unions as a leader of the Liberal Party, Bender outed him as gay to the king, destroying his sister's marriage and the man's political career. Chanel matched Bender's homophobia, as the book puts it. She's been quoted as saying this in 1964. Homosexuals, are they not always hanging around women? My beauty, my little one, my angel, continually strangling them with flattery. I have seen young women ruined by these awful queers, drugs, divorce, and scandal. They will use any means to destroy a competitor and to wreak vengeance on a woman. The queers want to be women, but they are lousy women. They are charming. It's pretty gross. I think it speaks for itself how that's not really appropriate. And I know there's, there's a few folks that are most certainly thinking, we shouldn't hold historical icons to modern standards, Blair. You must understand that things were different then. Personally, I still think it's important to condemn these attitudes so we can recognize that they were wrong and grow from them. However, regardless of what you believe about Coco Chanel, she also held values that weren't widely accepted at all. And some of those values were ones that took millions of lives, values that aligned with the Nazi party. Now, while she did struggle a bit during the economic depression in the 1930s, it wasn't until World War II that Coco had to close her business. And it's here that things become quite cloudy. Veteran journalist and investigative reporter Hal Vaughn explains Coco Chanel's relationship with the Germans in his book, Sleeping with the Enemy. However, it wasn't until 2011 that he published this work. And funny enough, he never set off on a mission to expose Chanel in the first place. According to Vaughn, he was interested in the life of H. Gregory Thomas, a Wertheimer family agent who just so happened to have ties to Chanel. At the time, Chanel only owned 10% of the profits and the Wertheimers, two Jewish brothers named Paul and Pierre, were her business partners. After her perfume had become a sensation, she was unable to meet demands. Enter the brothers. As they owned a family perfume and cosmetics business, they could handle all the production, marketing, and advertising costs. Chanel handed over the rights to the perfume and she received 10% of the profits. They got 70% and the remaining 20 went to another partner that promised to help with distribution. The Wertheimers are one of the richest families in the world. And while Chanel initially agreed to the deal, she began to think that she'd been swindled. She resented their agreement and convinced herself that she'd been robbed by the brothers. As Aryan laws were put into place, Chanel decided to take advantage of this and try to take her business back from them. And that's where Gregory Thomas comes into play. He was trying to stop her from doing so. It's said that the brothers had to flee France as the war broke out and transfer all their businesses to a trusted friend, Felix Amiot. It's important to recognize that Chanel wasn't trying to work with the brothers and renegotiate. As far as I've read from my sources, she went straight to attempting to effectively steal from them. Once she learned that the brothers were selling off their companies, she used the Vichy regime to her advantage. 
This was the regime in France that collaborated with the Nazis, or some claimed was puppeted by Nazis, that ordered the transfer of Jewish-owned businesses to French Aryan hands. In 1941, Chanel claimed that the brothers never actually sold their business to Amiot and it was still in Jewish hands. Therefore, she requested that all the company's shares be transferred to her. If Coco felt she'd been swindled and wanted more of the business, that's her call to make, her deal to negotiate. However, she actively attempted to use anti-Semitic laws to steal from her business partners. It didn't end up working, by the way. Uh, Amiot did also own a factory and manufactured military aircraft, so his relationship with Germans was, in essence, bulletproof. Would you side with a perfume or plain craftsman in war? Let's be real here. Now, it's bad enough that Chanel was hanging around homophobes, racists, and at one point dating a German intelligence officer that encouraged her to try and steal back the rights to the perfume in the first place. Yet, as Von Dug, he found a document describing Coco Chanel as a German agent. She wasn't just complicit in the war, but active in it as well. According to Vaughn's book, Chanel considered war men's business. She fired her 3000 female workers once it began, all the artisans, seamstresses, and shopkeeps. A few years ago, they demanded more pay and shorter hours. Vaughn alleges that she saw this as a means of payback. He wrote, ever inventive and opportunistic, Chanel thought she knew how to navigate through Nazi occupied Paris and how to arrange the release of her nephew, Andre Palas from a German prisoner of war camp so he could safely be returned to her side they would help Chanel for a price. Chanel was the perfect target for recruitment by the Germans. She needed something they could supply and she had powerful connections in London, neutral Spain and Paris. And obviously I do not agree with Chanel using her connections to give Germans intelligence, but there is some nuance here that needs to be noted. Things aren't just black and white and it's not as simple as Chanel was or was not a German spy. It might be easy for some of us to look back and say that we wouldn't have made her decision. And frankly, I can see why, considering that she had already some pretty strong anti-Semitic views before this, but I do think that this aspect of the story is important to address, even if it doesn't excuse her behavior in later years. Now, Chanel was partnered with another agent, Baron Louis de Valfrenland. Oh, good Lord, sorry. The agent was set up by the Nazi officer, Hans Gunther von Dinklage. They met with Chanel in the spring of 1941 to assure her that he'd be set free if she got political information in Madrid for the Germans. And just to simplify, because I know it's a lot of names to throw out at once, Chanel was partnered with a Baron and a known Nazi officer, and they set up the meeting. The Baron's boss told Chanel to go get them information to free her nephew. Once again, things get a little weird here and start falling into that gray area once more. Vaughn's book reads, Chanel was delighted with the idea of a trip to Spain. If Chanel was truly being pressured into this, only cooperating to save her nephew, then that wording throws me for a loop. Still, sometime that year in 1941, she was given the code name Westminster, Bender's ducal title, and agent number F-7124. It's not exactly clear what happened that year as many of these records have been destroyed, but a British diplomat, Brian Wallace, did make a record of meeting with Chanel and her partner at the time. Whatever did take place in 1941 was enough to release Andre. Chanel held up her end of the deal, and so many would presume at least that the relationship ended here. If it did, I'd likely be a bit more sympathetic towards her and say that Chanel aided a disturbing regime to help her family. However, even after Andre was released, Chanel continued this relationship. According to PBS, Nazi leaders told Dinklage that it was time to leave Paris and Chanel behind in winter 1943. 
Chanel was unwilling to be left alone in Paris though, and believed that her connection to none other than Winston Churchill could save her. She apparently thought she could persuade the Nazis that she, and by extension Dinklage, had the contacts to broker a peace deal with Britain. But this couldn't have gone any more wrong. One of her British socialite friends confessed her own part as a German agent and named Chanel as an informant in the process. As the war began to come to a close, they certainly weren't the only ones. Though many of Coco's friends had gone into hiding, some of the punishments were a bit laughable. One known choreographer was made to retire for a year for his collaboration with the Nazi party. As Vaughn wrote, feeling of hatred and revenge permeated French society. There had been so much suffering, humiliation, and shame. So many victims of betrayal, torture, and deportation. Shortly after France's liberation began in 1944, Chanel was arrested. She'd been on an FFI or French Forces of the Interior's blacklist for a couple years already, but they didn't have long to interrogate her before she was freed, allegedly by Churchill. Chanel's grandniece claims that Chanel told the maid Churchill had me freed when she returned home, but there was no proof that occurred. What we do know is that Chanel left France shortly afterwards to live in Switzerland. Now, there have been many theories discussing just how much Chanel knew about the shady backroom dealings that took place during the war. It's possible that she was aware of the Duke of Windsor corresponding with Hitler. Some even claim that Chanel may have known about Churchill violating his own trading with the Enemy Act when he secretly paid the Germans to protect the Duke of Windsor's property in Paris. There was an investigation done into Valfrenland, the agent she was partnered with, and he was found guilty for cooperating with the enemy and sentenced to six years in prison. His trial record stated that Chanel's answers to the court at his trial were deceptive and that the court would decide if her case would be pursued. Yet, since his trial also took place during the trials of other Nazis and collaborators, people seemed to take little notice of him or Chanel. U.S. authorities didn't learn until later that her second mission in 1944 was actually financed by SS General Schellenberg, the head of foreign intelligence for Nazi Germany. And just in case you don't know who this guy is, he's just notoriously awful. And it's not as if Hitler acted alone or anything, right? The guy was straight up to the top in terms of commanding the Nazis. So the fact that Chanel was connected to him, even with a few people in between them, is very, very, very concerning. And it does speak volumes to the values that she held at that time. All in all, Chanel seemed to have a dull but peaceful life in Switzerland post-war. She received $9 million for her percentage of perfume sales during the war. So she definitely could have quietly retired in wealth and luxury. However, that really was not Chanel's style. Instead, she was planning a comeback. And before we continue on to talk about her comeback and more controversy surrounding Chanel, let's take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. What's the key to consistent good hair days? Well, one of the obvious would be probably using ingredients that actually benefit your hair. Function of Beauty makes hair care products that are 100% customizable, made for your hair where it is now and where you want it to go. Function of Beauty is the world's first fully customizable hair care that creates individually filled shampoos, conditioners, styling, and treatment formulas. And they have over 54 trillion possible formulations. Every one of those is vegan and cruelty-free and they never use sulfates or parabens. And you can even go completely silicone-free if that's what works for your hair too. It's super easy to get started. All you do is take the quick hair quiz and talk about your hair profile and talk about what you want your hair to do. Do you want your hair to be volumized, lengthened, smooth, oil control? What is it that you want? They've got you covered. Then you choose your color and fragrance or you can go dye and fragrance free if that's your deal too. And then next step is get it delivered to your door. 
I've been using Function of Beauty for about a year and a half now, and I have just got to say the amount of customization in here and how you can choose exactly what you want for every single season is just so perfect because my hair changes between summer and winter. So this is kind of the perfect in-between for me. So say goodbye to generic hair care for good. Make sure you go to functionofbeauty.com casket to take your hair goals quiz and you'll save 25% on your first order. Again, go to functionofbeauty.com casket and let them know you heard about it from our show and get 25% off your first order. functionofbeauty.com casket. Now, if you also happen to run an e-commerce business like I do with my little candle shop, then you most certainly know that when you're shopping for the right shipping rates to mail out your products that you can't really get access to those really cool and awesome discounts because you may not just have enough volume. Well, just because these other companies are way larger than us doesn't mean that we shouldn't have access to those amazing discounts too. And that's where ShipStation comes in. ShipStation doesn't just save you money, but it's obviously a really good talking point to start. You're gonna get deeply discounted shipping rates that's normally reserved for Fortune 500 companies. And ShipStation works with over 45 carriers, so you can easily compare rates and delivery times to quickly find the best option every single time. And ShipStation works with over 300 platforms, including Amazon, eBay, Etsy, and more. And it all helps to automate processes like fulfillment and tracking, so you can save time managing orders. In fact, 98% of companies that use ShipStation for a year keep it for as long as they're in business. So that should tell you a little bit about their track record. So, hey, don't let the big guys keep all the good discounts for themselves. Sign up using my promo code casket for a free 60 day trial today at shipstation.com and start saving with every shipment. That's two whole months of discounted shipping for free. Make sure you go to shipstation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in the word casket. ShipStation, make ship happen. Chanel went back to one of the things she was most known for, perfume. As you can imagine, this was an obvious breach of the agreement she had with the Wertheimers. But Pierre decided to cut her a deal and in the spring of 1947, offered her $50,000, about $644,000 today, for an additional percentage of the Chanel number five sales. They eventually settled with Pierre giving Chanel $350,000 and 2% of all sales, about a million dollars per year or $9 million today. And you may be asking yourself, why would Pierre work with her again? Why would a Wertheimer or any Jewish person for that matter want to associate with someone who had Nazi connections? In this case, there were two big reasons, money and keeping the peace. In his situation, if he exposed Chanel, he'd be shooting himself in the foot as someone that owns 70% of the sales. He had every reason to treasure the brand and clearly this paid off in the long run. In 2008, a bottle of Chanel No. 5 was sold every 30 seconds and it's one of the most recognizable perfume brands in the world. As for the keeping the peace reason, some didn't call Chanel out because they were just as guilty. She wasn't the only socialite that used her connections in a shady manner during the war. And just as her connections allegedly spared her, it was the same for them too. Yet Chanel's comeback wasn't as magnificent and grand as she had hoped. French and British reporters were unimpressed. Her dresses were said to be good for cleaning offices and her models were likened to a herd of geese. In the States, people apparently liked the cleaning office look. Reporters called her a veritable tempest. This wasn't enough to save the company from bankruptcy from her expensive flop of a comeback, but Pierre Wertheimer offered her a deal, 
All holding bearing the Chanel name, including her commercial real estate and fashion company would go to him, but he'd pay her rooms at the Ritz, domestic help, phone bills, and any other cost of living. Although she still helped develop new perfumes and run the couture house, Chanel wasn't really self-made at this point in time. Her name still had value, but it was the Wertheimers that knew how to use it. She did make a comeback eventually, and even though Chanel herself passed away in 1971, her namesake has lived on. Today, the brand is still considered luxury though, at times controversial, but for very different reasons now. There are a few points of contention people have with Chanel aside from the price. The first is their ethics. Their ratings in terms of environmental impact is simply not good enough by many standards as they don't use eco-friendly materials. Though they claim to have the goal of reducing their greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030, there's not a lot of evidence, and really there's no evidence, that they've taken any steps to ensure that they're taking climate change seriously. They continue to use real leather or what they call caviar leather. In other words, calfskin. They also use lambskin, which is softer, but more fragile. Some people have no issue with leather. I know others that only buy leather that's been in circulation, like from a vintage shop, while other people oppose it entirely. Whether or not you support their treatment of animals is up to you. For many critics, their treatment of their workers is yet another issue. The Guardian wrote in 2018 that Elaine and Gerard Wertheimer, the owners of Chanel as it was passed down to them, paid themselves $3.4 billion in dividends the previous year. Their creative director, Carl Lagerfeld, is allegedly worth $200 million. Yet makeup artists, stylists, and junior designers are routinely exploited by these luxury brands. And Chanel is not alone in this by any means. It's a problem within the industry as a whole. Many young aspiring designers are overworked and underpaid, though that treatment pales in comparison for the working treatment of those making the products. Fashion Law reported that Chanel came under fire a few years ago when employees went on strike. Not only were they protesting long hours and low wages, just as Chanel's employees did a century earlier, but female employees complained about their skimpy uniforms as well. The Korea Times noted how unusual it was for Korean employees of luxury brands to walk out, but over 1,000 individuals and up to about 95% of the union members between Chanel and Estee Lauder were demanding change. Some said they had to work 12 hours a day without regular days off, even when they were in late-term pregnancy, merely asking for days off twice a month. Chanel did increase salaries, but for many luxury brands, it's clear that this is just how things operate behind the scenes. All the while in front of the scenes, Chanel is happy to raise their prices just to appear more luxurious and compete with other brands such as Hermes. From the end of 2019 to December, 2021, they raised the prices of some of their classic bags by two thirds, the business of fashion has reported. A spokesperson said this was in response to the change in production costs, but as the article explained, luxury sector executives and analysts say the magnitude of the increase signals an aggressive corporate strategy, asserting control over one of the brand's most popular products while taking aim at higher end rivals. They're trying to be even more upscale, more desirable. They've even limited the number of bags that can be bought in an attempt to be exclusive. You're not paying for the product at this point, but the name, and that's really it. If the name brand is worth it to you, by all means, that's your choice. But given the way these companies often treat their workers, the hollow promises about changing manufacturing to be more green, there's just a lot to be disappointed in. And frankly, even without Coco Chanel's upsetting history, this is still disappointing. But what does it matter today? What, you know, Coco Chanel did years ago? While there are a few modern issues with the brand, much of people's problems in this episode's focus with Chanel's history are their ties to the Nazis. Does that truly matter anymore now that Chanel has passed away? 
This too has been seriously debated, especially when Hal Vaughn's book about Chanel was released. At the time, Vaughn claimed he did not write the book to haunt Chanel. It was just a good story, he explained. The idea that Coco Chanel, a fashion icon, had ties to the Nazis is bound to catch people's attention. When he was asked, should anyone still wear Chanel? His response was interesting. I have no feelings against Chanel. You can't put someone like Klaus Barbie and Chanel in the same category. She didn't kill anybody. She didn't torture anybody. Madame Gabrielle Labrine, Chanel's grandniece, said something to me that I found fascinating. She said to me, you know, Mr. Vaughn, these were very difficult times and people had to do very terrible things to get along. Chanel was, very simply put, an enormous opportunist who did what she had to do to get along. And this does remind me about what we've heard about the French socialites earlier. People did do terrible things to save themselves and Chanel seemed to be no exception to this. But it's not just what she did that bothers me about Chanel, but it's also how she hid it. It's how she didn't take any accountability, apologize, recognize it. She just hid out in Switzerland, then restarted her brand as if nothing ever happened. I'm really not convinced that she was actually sorry or recognized the harm in her actions whatsoever. It was just about how do I save my skin and move up the next step of the ladder. But it's also the brand that seems to make excuses for its founder's troubled history. The Chanel company discredited Vaughn's 2011 work as speculation stating, it will no doubt always remain a mystery. They continue to refer to Chanel as a daring pioneer with an extraordinary legacy. There's no doubt that her fashion legacy lives on, but to ignore the side of her or pretend it didn't exist, that's not acceptable for many people in the modern era. Eric Silverman, anthropologist and author of A Cultural History of Jewish Dress told Forbes, I believe that all firms which have profited from evil in the past, Holocaust, slave trade, land disposition in Southern Africa, mistreatment of women, and so on, have a moral obligation to give something back to the communities that were harmed. A full accounting and an apology is a start. And that does seem like the very least that the Chanel brand could do given Coco's background. Slowly but surely, the public has learned of these ties and French director Stephanie Benhamu has furthered this work by making a documentary entitled The Number Five War. According to her, this excuse of everyone did horrible things during the war is inexcusable. Speaking as someone who's Jewish, Benhamu says that hiding this part of history for commercial reasons is intolerable. Chanel the company has obvious reasons for not wanting Coco's past to become associated with their current brand, but their silence has not done them any favors either. And in my opinion, it just makes them look like they don't care about her past actions or don't want to heal any hurt if it affects their bottom line. More and more people have become aware of this history all the same. A new retrospective of her work in Paris did this back in 2020. The exhibition did focus on her relationship with Nazis, but it did not ignore them either. And I kind of think this is the better route to go. Chanel doesn't need to be crucified or canceled for good. If you own one of Chanel's handbags, you don't need to go set it on fire and denounce the brand forever. What we do need is more acknowledgement and learning. And as a little bit of learning, by the way, if you ever look at the historical like photographs and vintage bags that are Chanel that were actually created by her versus the kind of newer designs that I think most of us are actually accustomed to, most of those newer designs that are actually like exciting that people want and stuff like that were made by like Carl Lagenfeld, I believe. They weren't actually made by her. He either modified her designs or made new ones entirely and turned the brand really into what it is. Carl is, was a really amazing person. It was really sad when he passed away recently, um, but he was someone that I've always been just really interested in his history and how he was able to really take Chanel's brand to the next level and really kind of make it his own. So 
that's just a little fun fact for me because sometimes I just hyper-focus on, on weird things and he just happened to be one of them at one point in time. But the overall point still does remain. Until Chanel, the company, is willing to admit to their previous flaws and grow from there, this will forever be a stain on their luxury brand. And with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode. I hope you learned something new today. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. I really appreciate your time here with me today. I know you could be doing a million and a half things, and yet you chose about 20, 30 minutes of your day to be right here. So thank you for that. As always, if you'd like to connect with me outside of these episodes, please feel free to click on the Linktree link in the description box that has all of my social media and other projects I'm involved in. As per usual, thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.